Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is poet Todd Robinson. In today's show, Robinson talks about investigating life through poetry, the everyday awkwardness, yearnings, loss, and triumphs explored in his intimate books of poetic praise, Note at Heart Rock and Mass for Shut-ins, revealing why one reviewer described him as a veritable Neruda of Nebraska. Robinson shares experiences that have shaped his life and writing, and will read for us some of his poems. The poems that are hardest to listen to or offer the least enjoyment are the selfish ones, right? Where the meanings are also private. It just kind of leaves you grasping at air. It's got to be personal. It's got a deal of some ambiguity, but yeah, we've got to reach out. Todd Robinson is the author of two poetry collections, most recently, Mass for Shut-ins, and, before that, Note at Heart Rock. He has led community writing workshops with many organizations, including UNMC, the Kaneko, and Bemis Art Museums, the Nebraska Writers Collective, Omaha and Lincoln Warrior Writers, and the Nebraska Writers Guild. He is an assistant professor in the Writers Workshop at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and caregiver to his partner, a disabled physician. Todd Robinson, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. It's beyond delightful to be here. We can possibly cut to the chase here and end our interview early because in your poem, You Will Be Held Accountable, uh, you say, as for me, I have no children. I am a happily married former junkie who eschews meat. Is that it? Are we done? Is this you? <laughs> yeah, that none of that's changed. None of that has changed. So we, we've achieved stasis. Suspended animation. Well, why don't we dig a little deeper then and head back to the early years? Uh, what stands out to you from your childhood? So many things, right? You ask that question and suddenly I'm in a hall of portraits, a hall of mirrors, a hall of action figures, a hall of processed foods, <laughs> television shows. Uh, once I start saying this sentence, I realize that it's such an impossible jumble the beautiful thing about it, not answering your question right away, I am a poet, I'm going to diverge, uh, but um, the beautiful thing is in time, given enough time, almost everything looks beautiful. So when you ask that question, what stands out, I think it's a huge mountain of jewels. It's, it's, uh, it's the Louvre of the mind. It's stocked, stacked, gleaming, <laughs> resplendent. So uh, yeah. Is it the opening credits to the show Fantasy Island? Is it that water plane skimming down next to Mr. Rourke and Tattoo? I don't want that to be the answer, but it's, it emerges from the depths of me somehow. <laughs> Not to be monomaniacal, but that feels a little bit like what a poem does, right? For me, it's a blank page. It's a line after another line. I don't know. I don't have a destination in mind. I have maybe the faintest glimpse of an inkling, of an image, a memory, and then things just sort of bloom up from some unknown reservoir. Well, let me make the anchoring leap then from Fantasy Island to Ralston, which I believe is where you were born and raised. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your family context. I mean, on the surface, somewhat generic, nuclear family, mom, dad, sister, brother, you know, everyone has a one or a two syllable name. 
you know, <laughs> two cars. Um, there are wrinkles in that story. You know, I write a, a fair amount about how my father was a victim of a violent crime when he was 34. I was 10. Uh, he was shot in the head, right? And uh, the trajectory of the family sort of changed. He survived and is still alive, knock on wood. Yeah, which also feels very American too, right? I say that somehow that's different, but sadly it's it's less and less different, right? So, and in other ways, you know, we're very, very American in lots of ways. My mother grew up on a farm but moved to the city, so we're part of that whole rural diaspora, right? Man, we ate a lot of processed meals. That's the second time I've used that word, processed. It'll probably be more. That's three. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, latchkey kid, right? I, I, you know, it's fascinating because we feel so unique and we, f- we can feel alone and different. But man, we're all just stamped by whatever the, the culture, the economy, the politics, the history that is swirling around us. Within that, there's a uniqueness. It feels unique. But maybe, maybe we're not so, so singular and alone. When did you first actually have this objective realization that you were writing poetry and that you were labeling yourself a poet. Well, I think those are, I can separate those. Maybe not all poets can, but I think I realized I was writing poetry in high school. I I would uh, write poor Pink Floyd rip rip off lyrics, right? Uh, Edgar Allan Poe imitations. Um, There were a lot of coffins, darkness, you know, uh, unsubtle. So, but I, I wanted to call it poetry, but I, I knew it was pretty bad. It's interesting that you'd ask that question because I still am a little uncomfortable with being called a poet. I don't think I really even thought I was until I was probably mid to late thirties even. And I'd published poems, even in some good magazines, you know, and I just, it felt pretentious or It just seemed like an ill-fitting word for whatever it was I was doing. Dilettante might be a better fit. But um, but I had a friend introduce me to to a friend of hers, and she said, this is Todd, he's a poet. And I was like, what? Linda thinks I'm a poet? Am Am I a poet? Oh, that feels really good to be introduced as one. So one thing I might say to our young listeners out there uh, is – maybe it's better to have someone else say it first. You know, there's great sort of validation there. When did you get your PhD though? Because it's interesting that you have that reflection about how you identify. You are a PhD holder in poetry. So that, that was an interesting thing where I started in literary criticism, came to poetry late because every week felt like a desert in, toward the middle of grad school of the doctoral program. But, but the poetry class I took kind of on a whim felt like an oasis, you know, there was water there, there was community there. I could make it through the rest of the week with that poetry class in the middle of it. Right. And so, yeah, I wrote some poems, loved reading, loved poets and conversations and felt very much alive in a way I didn't feel elsewhere or else when, but I also had the the imposter syndrome, you know, I just felt like I'm not accomplished enough. I started too late. I I play too many video games, you know, I, I squander vast banquet halls of time. So I, I'm not dedicated enough. So, um, yeah, which I think is a feeling that dogs, a lot of artists, right? A lot of people, probably most of us, right? That self-doubt. And 
where's that voice coming from, right? I mean, is that, uh, is that a bad teacher in our past? Is that a parent? Is, I don't know. Maybe it's just our own vulnerability and humility and self-doubt. But anyway, no, I wouldn't have called myself a poet until Linda gave me permission. But even now, I still want to dodge that word. (laughs) Maybe it feels too precious. I'm just a dude who occasionally writes poems. (laughs) So why don't we turn a little bit to some of the work that you have written, and you have a variety of work that has been published over many, many years. And the first book was Note at Heart Rock. More recently, just before the pandemic, was the book Mass for Shut-Ins. And there's a variety of themes in both of those books, but particularly for uh, Mass for Shut-Ins, it's an intimate book of praise for our everyday awkwardness, yearnings, and triumphs. And I'd love to take a little time to explore some of the themes that you're wrestling with in that book. Um, And so one of them, for me, I feel like is place. You seem keenly aware of place, but not so much the grandeur of it and the glamour of it, but it's, it's really quite earthy. What is it about place that captures your attention poetically? Yeah, a play, I love place. I, I, I am a writer of this place. I'm a regionalist would be maybe a literary term for it, which can be pejorative, right? Um, my, one of my most well-known teachers, Ted Kuzer, writes of this place. I love one thing I love is knowing where people are from and getting under the surface of things, you know, thinking about how place shapes us, how we shape it back, you know, the built environment, weather, I don't know, ecosystems. I am from Omaha. I spent summers on a farm, my cousin's farm. I've never really left, you know, maybe a couple of weeks here, a month or two there, but uh, this is my place. So I kick around looking at it. My poems typically begin in me walking around the neighborhood or remembering being a child on this farm. So yeah, you know, it's, I'm a lived in poet. It's uh, often kind of domestic, intimate, as you said, up close. I think it's probably more interesting to write about place or to incorporate place than to just write about like what I really sort of do, which is look at my phone 50 times a day, heat up some coffee, have a muffin. I mean, you can make art of anything. I believe that. But it feels bigger, richer, deeper to be attentive to place. So I'm actually designing a class for spring in the writer's workshop at UNO where place will be really central. And I want us to think about and to anatomize where we're from, you know, to really be attentive to it, to peel back all these different layers you know, what's the hydrology of, of uh, East Central Nebraska? I don't know, but I want to know. And I want us to look that up. If we're from Niobrara, Nebraska, you know, what's, what's a local plant or five, right? Like what, what has been erased? You know, what flora and fauna are gone? So I don't know if the students are hearing this, but they might want to drop now because we're going we're gonna to get some botany going on. We're going to bring in some specialists because we want to, I want to be more attentive to place, always more, never less. I think there are a couple of poems where certain characterizations stood out to me in the vein of what you're sharing. Uh, one is Elegy for Summer, and you talk about um, while humid ripened to bursting when storms rattled over the hills of chalk. And then you also talked about walking just now, and, and in your poem, Nebraska City Salter, 
You write, birds ruled the branches of a tired river town, haze of August, heat muddying the starlight, chlorine glow of street lamps and the jolt of coal trains through the gut of steaming America. And I feel like you really are embodying a sense of the real Nebraska that most of us encounter day to day, whether it's in the city or in a rural setting or on the farm, just stepping out of our houses. But there's very much this sense that you get into it, you are out there. And certainly in Nebraska City, part of that poem was you stepping out in the darkness of night just to walk around. And it feels very much like many of those great writers of the past for whom being in the world was an important part of their inspiration. Is being in the world literally a big part of how you write poetry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Muriel Rukeyser, a poet I really admire. I quote her a lot. Maybe I've done this in a few other media forms, Stuart, but she says, um, breathe in experience, breathe out poetry. And um, yeah, you know, the cool thing about probably any art form, but poetry is what I know best. So I would say the cool thing about poetry is that everything we're doing all the time is sort of composting inside you, you know, in your cells, in your brain, you know, your lungs, whatever. It's just being you know, stored isn't the right word because we don't always have ready access to it. We don't always have accurate access to it, but it's there, layer after layer, decaying. Some things are keeping their shape and living in the world, walking, seeing, talking, touching, you know, applying your senses, applying your imagination to this the space that you're in. It's so generative, not maybe not immediately. Sometimes it is generative immediately. In Nebraska City, you know, I was at this residency and walking at night, three in the morning, I couldn't sleep. And there's these new sounds and there's hawks and there's the river and the coal trains. And and uh, that was immediate. That didn't need to compost because it was so rich and new and varied and kind of hallucinatory almost in its, in its beauty. But the other living that I do, walking through the Rose Garden Memorial Park, walking through a neighborhood of apartment complexes, whatever, driving with the windows open, listening, all of it, it's just compost for future writing, most of which you'll never use, but it's, it's there and it's part of that nurturing subsoil. I'm losing my ability to speak with any degree of accuracy or technical acumen, but I know that for me... Although I might sit in a room and write, maybe on a keyboard, it's not very glamorous. You know, the living is essential. It's the pre-writing always. So I feel like very little is wasted in life. You know, again, in a poem, poem is going to tend to be brief. I don't write very often. So maybe 99% of what I experience will never find its way in, but it still feels somehow useful, you know? And that's part of the beauty of it for me. I don't really care how it's used or when or if it's noticeable. It's all part of that composting. So it's cool. It would be great to scatter some readings throughout our conversation. So I don't know if now's a good time if you wanted to select something to share with us. Let's read a new one. And this, is, this, this felt so timely when I titled it, and now it already feels maybe old-fashioned. You'll see in mere seconds what I mean. Uh, It's called Last Blue Supermoon Until 2037. I'm not going to be able to read that without laughing in the future, but it begins with an epigraph from Philip Schaefer. The woods inside our minds are dark and deeply jealous. I am a faithful skeptic. 
Every morning, the thing I call my voice careens around my skull like that motorcyclist we once paid very little to see circle a steel sphere in Shanghai. I can never follow the exhaust trail for long, but the tire marks surely leave dark ideograms pointing toward a vast global conspiracy to ignore my poetry. If the mind is a Chinese circus, what's in those thick clay pots the strongman hurls aloft to gently catch on his shoulders? One holds a fish fry line, her first gray hair a fairy tale thread in my hand. You could die, I said. I don't want to die, she cried. I mean you could color it, I said. And then we laughed. Homonyms. I am a dedicated liar. Touch a string. A wave becomes a note, becomes feeling, becomes meaning, becomes memory. It's that way with everything. Um, when I first started to read that, I thought, this doesn't have any connection to what I've just said because we're not in, you know, the neighborhood. We're not in Nebraska, right? But then as I was finishing, I thought it's exactly ties to what we've said, that kind of accumulation of memories and details, right? Um, did I know when I was in Shanghai at the circus that that would be a poem? I probably thought, oh, this would be a really cool poem, right? But it took, uh, what, 14, 15 years for it to find its way onto the page, you know? And it, did I intend to put it on the page? No, absolutely not, right? And there's also that reference in there to the word meaning, and it feels like meaning-making in some ways out of that poem. Maybe it required 15 years to achieve that impetus. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Meaning-making. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the ethos of probably, I don't want to get too grandiose, so I'm not going to say all art-making. I redact that, expunge that from the record, please. But, but yeah, I mean, for me, and that's what I... I don't even know myself, really. I could really be devil's advocate to the point of nullness, but I will say meaning-making, yes. So from the endless stream of impressions and moments, the feelings that are sort of murky and ever-changing, consciousness is ivy drip uh, of, of chaotic impressions and so on. The poem is, you know, T.S. Eliot would say, a still point in the turning world, right? So you get this little core sample of consciousness. At the least, that's what it is. It's just words. You're putting them together with a degree of randomness and intention that is mysterious and beautiful. And um, you're making meaning, however tenuous, however, you know, interpretable or variable. Out of all that life streaming out behind you, there's just this little time stamp, this little glimpse of beauty, of, of uh, memory of meaning. Meaning, we can make it, and we can hold on to it. It's slippery, but we can hold on. Do you have another new piece that you'd like to share? Why, I do. Uh, <laughs> thank you for your generous time and attention. You're the single greatest human in the city. Uh, this is called Against Desire. I am working to dismantle my illustrious ego. After a night of feverish dancing, I drive past the abandoned Greyhound station with its nostalgic loiterers, grateful my feet hurt only a little. Five million steps a year toward what? In a poem I read, a seed travels through a bird, which travels through a train, which travels through America but in the opposite direction. 
Under our brains' balloons, we too travel, whether barefoot across the marble floors of the Hagia Sophia or kicking up little constellations of sawdust in a Nebraska dance hall far from the nearest socialist. I will never swim the Hellespont, nor call a child mine, but I have danced the Flying Dutchman with veins full of lightning in a town with two bars and seven churches. I want to stop wanting, to fold my smudged glasses closed, see the crimson hibiscus not as a flaming seal on oblivion's contract, but as a mask I don't care to strike through. Every week I hand my analyst a Benjamin and laugh as he drives me like a mastodon over the cliff of myself. I feel like a lot of your work speaks to what might be regarded as the ordinariness of life and yet extracts from it the profundity of that existence that we have, whether it's dirt-worn Nebraska dance halls or the Hagia Sophia. You reference dancing with um, lightning in your veins. And these are all experiences that I think we can relate to, but you're pulling out of them something that speaks to this majesty of, of being alive. How do you go about addressing what would otherwise seem to be the ordinary and rendering it in some ways intriguing and interesting and perhaps worthy of examination? That's a great question because our memories and feelings and ideas feel rich to us, but any poem is, is um, it's not just written for the self, right? I mean, you, you, you're wanting it to bridge some gap between you and another person and bridge it in a way that isn't just information, right? It's not just me saying, you know, I go to this analyst, I pay him a hundred bucks a session, right? Like the information is the least important part of it. I can tell you that in a heartbeat, right? A poem I can, I'm trying to do something different, right? I'm trying to communicate with you in a way that is stranger. We might say deeper, a way that is more mysterious, more innate, you know, it's, it's down to the marrow somehow. I want to reference, uh, some lines from some of the poems that you've written that appear in Mass for Shut-ins. In Renewing the Vows, you finish a, a, an intimate and poignant and painful poem about your relationship with your partner. And at the end, you, you write, she asked me why I never write poems about her. I tell her every poem is about her. And that book contains many poems that are about your relationship with her and with others. But then you go on in a newer work, which is Tuttle Sandhill Elegy, and you reference more recent loss, and you say, they died in our year of madness, put to rest by priest drone in blizzard. We rationed their mason jars of tomato sauce, salsa, choke cherry jam, until the last one ghosted open like a saint's reliquary gave long gone water, earth, sun, and time, grateful and slow, nothing left for it to hold. And so I'm curious about the focus you have on these poems of, of love and loss, and in particular those ones and others about those relationships. Mm, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, provocative question, important question. 
it really gets to the heart of so much of why I read and write. We all live inside loss. We all live inside grief. And, it, you know, it's, it's a truism that poetry writes about death a lot, right? That it can be a death-obsessed art form. But so is bluegrass music, right? I mean, memento mori. Take a look at some Flemish still lives from the 17th century. It's skull after skull after skull, right? So art is a place for us to give shape to these kind of formless feelings of fear, of regret, of anguish. Uh, I'm just listing synonyms at this point, so I'll corral myself. But yes, we're all forced to reckon with impermanence all the time. But we also, via memory, via photography, via a recipe book, we have access to that person. But even that access, as sweet as it is, is it's tinctured with acid, with pain, right? Because that person isn't there. The person who wrote the recipe or the coleslaw is no more. So so my poems circle this this theme a lot, maybe maybe excessively. Perhaps there's a disorder there, just some disordered thinking. So much of how we spend our hours is to distract ourselves, right? To sort of uh, to laugh, and, and that's great, right? To watch sports, to just enjoy. And enjoyment is great, and happiness is great. So maybe in a really weird way, it's enjoyable for me to kind of sift through what we've lost, you know, to sift through people who've died or fallen away, to sift through relationships that were once important and now are just these signposts streaming out behind my car, you know? Um, yeah, and I'm in that situation now with with my marriage because my wife is, has been disabled for three years and has really been very ill with this autoimmune issue for almost six years and it's not going to get better. And so, you know, again and again, we sort of find ourselves comparing our past life when we could take her health for granted and our present life when we can never take it for granted. And that feels very poignant. It is very poignant. And again, it's one thing to just feel its poignance and to feel its sadness, to feel powerless. And it's another thing to write about it in a way that is honest and tenderhearted, that is sometimes bitter. Where else do I have a place where I can fit all these feelings into a shape that can hold it that I can share. I can share in a way that is beautiful and strange and, and, and is art. So yeah, the next book or books will be narrower in their focus, but maybe deeper. How much of this excavation into challenging personal experiences for you and for the people you love around you, how much of that is for you to not have to keep paying Benjamins to your therapist, but also how much of that requires you to be cognizant of how these poems land with other people, either the subjects of these poems or perhaps others who are experiencing similar things in their life, unconnected from you, but perhaps for whom the poem might give succor and solace and some form of relief. When I'm writing, I'm not thinking of other people. That teacher I referred to, Ted Kuzer, before said, have an ideal reader in mind so that you can craft your work very specifically to that person, to what they know, to what they need, right? Um, but I don't do it that way. I don't have anyone in mind. I'm simply trying to write phrases and sentences that seem nimble and provocative, that seem to have meaning, but also 
to elude meaning in, in interesting ways, right? But when it's done, maybe sometimes during the writing, I'll say maybe you shouldn't, maybe that word excrement's weird. Like, is there a, is there a word that sounds better, that looks better, that you won't be judged for? So I can't say that I'm impervious to opinion. So I am thinking of others to an extent, but it's not really till the poem's done that I want, I do want to share it, you know, and, and often I begin with my partner, you know, with, she's a, she's a very great reader and my work revolves around her and she doesn't lie to me. So if a piece sounds bad, if it's self-indulgent, she'll tell me immediately <laughs> there's, she'll, she'll often go, eh, <laughs> which is take this dagger out of my back, Stuart. It, it's a painful way, but the brevity is it, it works. But anyway, so, yeah, I mean, it's a communicative act. The worst poems are the poems that are only for you. And worst is maybe a value judgment I want to revise. The poems that are hardest to listen to or offer the least enjoyment are the selfish ones, right? Where the meanings are also private or unknowable, you know, that it just kind of leaves you grasping at air. So it's got to be personal. It's got to be, it's got to deal with some ambiguity. We've got to make the language take shapes it wouldn't normally take. We couldn't call it a poem perhaps otherwise, but, but yeah, we've got to reach out and obviously loss and grief are, they're uniformly felt. So can't go wrong with those old standbys, buddy. <laughs> you talk about poems perhaps being the least effective or important if they're just directed solely at yourself and how your partner when reading doesn't lie to you, which makes me wonder the degree to which you have to avoid lying to yourself in your poems. I'm specifically thinking about your openness in your poems to addressing issues of sobriety and addiction, which is reflective of your own lived experience. How have you addressed the writing of poems? to unearth something a little deeper than just the fact that you are a recovered addict with certain different substances. I know when I was working on my first book on a note heart rock, I, I was still in active addiction and I didn't want people to know that, you know, I've worked very hard to present myself as somebody who was living a fun loving lifestyle. Right. And, um, I wanted to maintain that illusion. So I didn't feel I could write honestly about those issues. I, I would hide little clues in the book. You know, there's one poem, a love letter to James Tate that, you know, asked, do you like marijuana? Some people like it every day. Right. And that some people, that's not me. <laughs> that's some people. And then some people also like Manhattans. Right. And that was, that was a useful poetic experiment beyond the first person. Right. But it was also me sort of coming a little bit out of the addiction closet, but then slamming that door closed and turning out the light. With recovery, not too long after that book was published, I was obsessed with sobriety. I was obsessed with addiction, right? So then Mass for Shut-Ins, many of the poems revolve around that. And that was a revelation, to be honest, to be honest about who I was and how I'd spent my time to not romanticize addiction, perhaps to romanticize recovery, although I don't think it'd make it sound pleasant per se, but there was this new churn of feelings, um, new churn of relationships, new ways of living that were not always easy. And then this looking back, I'm always looking back, right? I mean, I'm a retrospective writer. And so, so you're saying to yourself, 
how could I be the same person who behaved that way? How did it seem so natural in spite of all evidence that suggested it was unsustainable, dangerous, toxic? How did I keep going? How did I stop, right? So anyway, you don't want to be too much of a mirror licker, right? Um, but some of it's inevitable when you're this handsome, Stuart. I wish your readers could see me now, your listeners. <laughs> anyway, um, and now, you know, I'm nine years sober, right? So now I, I get a little uncomfortable talking about it all the time, right? I'm like, but no, I'm just an upstanding citizen like anyone else now. So that's interesting. So here I'm out with this book read by dozens. <laughs> and blurbed by Kurt Anderson. <laughs> that's right. Bless you, Kurt. Uh, yes. Uh, and this is, this is the face that I have worn. You know, T.S. Eliot says to put on the face to meet the faces that you meet. So the face I had in 2010 was, hey, I'm just this fun-loving guy who likes to drink or whatever. And the face in 2015 or 18 when this book came out was, hey, I'm the former guy who used to drink and now I don't. And now I'm like, I want another face, you know. I guess I'm, it's the caregiver face. And then maybe in 10 years I'll say, wow, that was really reductive. Why was I so obsessed? But how can we not be obsessed when we're in it? There's a poem in Master Shadin's The Giddy Centaur, and you have this line, I am so giddy, giggling always. And I think that encapsulates an aspect of you really, really well. It is writing about the joyful, frivolous, amusing, absurd aspects of life also just a, a, another relief for you and a poetic vein of richness that you love to mine? My superpower is that I'm naturally fond of people. So it's easy to be jolly because when I see people, strangers like these, the, you know, your staff who were strangers an hour ago to old friends like you, I'm, I'm really happy to see people. I just feel I'm at my best and I feel inspired. So, so the jolliness is real. To get back to the question of is it a, is it a sort of energy source? Is it a renewable resource for writing? The work has gotten heavier. Uh, the last few years with, with my partner's illness. But humor does still creep in, and it, it feels like it's a reliable, it's, it's a renewable resource in me for sure. It's made more manifest in person with people. I want to be joking. I want to be silly. I want to be audacious, transgressive. That's less a part of the poems than it was, but it is still there. I sort of surprised myself because I walk around saying, yeah, I just write these dour poems now. I'm, I'm Mr. Dower. Dr. Dower, actually, uh, but, <laughs> but the humor's there. It's a little drier. It's a little more wry. And uh, is that a defense mechanism? I, I don't know. I think things are funny. Things are absurd anyway. And a poet can take himself far too seriously. So it, it's, it is a kind of, I mean, isn't the clown is always, the fool is always the devil's advocate. He's always the one who says, yeah, for all our pomp and circumstance, Everything we do is somewhat ridiculous, right? Can we all just say that and admit that, right? And it's one thing we love about them because they call out our hypocrisy. They call out our chicanery, our mendacity, right? Our pretensions to divinity, our pretensions to glory, our pretensions to the rational. That's part of the beauty of humor. But it's not always just critical like that, right? It's exuberant and joyous. It's jollity, as you said, good word. It's a celebration, ultimately even as it calls out silliness, stupidity, whatever. It's a celebration of all that is human. I don't mean this facetiously, but what is the point of poets and poetry? Wow. Well, well I'll, I'll counter with what is the point of anything. 
I mean, we, I think we ask, we ask poets that question more because it's maybe harder to see what the point might be, but ask any poet and, and they'll, a good poet who's in a chess match with ideas will, will say that. What is the point of, uh, I don't know, buddy, truly, what is the point? <laughs> Most of the things we do, we could probably argue are innately arbitrary. I won't say meaningless, right? We don't want to be too heavy there, but but the meaning that most things have, we give them that meaning, right? The Kansas City Chiefs, best team there ever was. I love them, right? Like that's not objectively true, right? So poetry, it's another art form that for those of us who read it and write it, you know, it, it uh, plucks a string in us that, uh, that other art forms don't, right? And maybe it probably still does have some residual sort of esoteric feel, you know, that's older than our, than our technology. Although our technology gives it new shape and new audiences, it feels it's, it's as far removed from the prerogatives of the marketplace of the market economy as any art form. I mean, I think jazz musicians still get paid sometimes. So I compare it to jazz, but, but I think it's, it is more of an outlier. And maybe that's its charm in so many ways. That's its appeal that it just, it's way out there. People aren't paying for it. It can't really be exploited. I don't want to call it pure, but um, it, it has a certain resonance, a cachet, an outlier, outre sort of, a, of, of an energy that, that I don't see elsewhere. So we, we can sort of do what we want with it. Would you have any suggestions following that vein for listeners then who may want an entree into poetry that may express something that can speak not only to our times, but perhaps to the persistent questions we have about life and making sense of what it is to be here? Well, there are many, right? Many possible points, and I can't speak to anyone's taste, but one place one might start would be Diane Seuss. She recently won a Pulitzer Prize, so I'm not picking anyone obscure for you. Easy to find her books, and she's been validated by the cognoscenti, right? But she is, she's brilliant without being pretentious. I think that's a huge part of her appeal. You don't feel like you're being talked down to or you're too stupid to understand her. So she writes about blue-collar life in Michigan, so she's attentive to this, the struggles, economic struggles. She's also a lover of art. She spent time in New York and the kind of punk scene. So she's tied into culture. It doesn't feel like she's in the echo chamber of her own brilliance. She is brilliant. She often writes these kind of sonnet-like poems. So they're digestible, but they're long lines. They're unrhymed. Very attentive to place and culture, to the body, to the body's dysfunction and ugliness, right? So you're, you're going to get an unvarnished look at reality. And yet one that is contained in art, that is rhythmic, that is um, effusive, that is practiced and poised and beautiful. So she'd be a good one. I think every American should be given a copy of Terrence Hayes' American Sonnets to My Past and Future Assassin, which are also sonnet-like poems, unrhymed sonnets, highly rhythmic, um, that contain American history history of American racism, American music, in ways that you, you just didn't know language could bend like that. I think if anybody 
is in that Shakespeare wheelhouse in the 21st century. It's probably Terrence Hayes. So Terrence Hayes and Diane Seuss, read them. If you don't like what you read, come back to me. I'll give you two more suggestions and we'll, we'll find something for you. Would now be a good time perhaps to hear some more of your work. Absolutely. There's never a bad time, frankly, my man. Um, Let's do this one. This is, uh, I've written, we've talked a little bit about my partner and I haven't really read any about her. So let's, let's roll one of those out. Um, This is may the world to come, come because the crickets are loud and the shipwreck moon is right outside the door. Erica Meitner. Because we sleep in two beds because our ears ring and the garden froze Because black branches spell machinery and meaning, the absence and presence of God, I equivocate the nightscape in my pajama pants, remembering a boy among boys in backyard grass with a plastic gun, or waltzing a girl past crumbled fountains. The furnace huffs. I am sleepless with the owl murmuring evening theorems. A street lamp exhales a lull of light across the bed cover's rhetoric. She coughs and coughs. We will not always be here. All the themes we've talked about, they're all baked in. They're baked in. I don't even know if it's conscious, my man. I mean, they're just, they just come back and they come back and they come back. And why wouldn't they, right? I mean, people cook... Um, Asian fusion food again and again and again. They cook bouillabaisse again and again and again, right? They play those blues riffs again and again. So it makes sense that we repeat ourselves, right? With repetition and variation. More, he says. He gestured that, listeners. More, I think. Or maybe he was just agreeing. Uh, Let's do this pandemic poem. Um, we don't want to talk about it or remember it, maybe, but but there was a time when there we all were facing our loneliness. Reading Melville in Omaha. The bright lilt of psalms against a backdrop of leaves. Hammock swaying to bird prattle. Lives heaving all around. Bats in the chimney. A skull cloud over the skull house. What do worms want in their oceans of dirt? Doldrums again. Scratch SOS into burnt toast. Praise the knife point. He channeled a nation's boredom and wanting. God in mirror fog. Sea shanties, just another sidewalk chalk. Riding with tendons and guilt of greed's lurch. Here... Homeless sparrows at the hacked privet. Sleepless feet under a scythe of moon. White noise over the neighbor kid's sandbox. Dawn sprinklers whisking Ishmael, Ishmael, Ishmael. You start reading that thing and you're like, wow, I hate this. Why did I choose this poem? (laughs) Please no one listen. (laughs) <laughs> well, let's not leave that taste in the mouth. Uh, let, let, let's hear one more. One more? One more, you say. Okay, here's one from the first book. Uh, we'll go back in time. Um, a revised version of that one. You know, that book's 13 years old, 12 years old, or something like that, and uh, I'm still not satisfied. 
should old acquaintance be forgot. We were in Balboa Park, among a hundred black dresses. Gin rioted in my head like a New Year's reveler, December's last candle guttering. For a while, I danced with a smiling stranger, worrying about my breath. Then the ball dropped, and amid the cacophony, I was atomized like a moon-calf philosopher, crammed with human feelings, inventoried each morning for the benefit of wisdom. I fought my way to the front of the conga line, my wife's antique necklace glowing in the dark. Citrines, yellow as the plastic energy crystals that powered plastic ships around my favorite board game's star map. The black facsimile of space we operated as suburban boys knowing nothing of the future. Or minute yellow dabs floating like the stars I saw when I howled myself hoarse the night our love first faltered. These moments will never return. The years line up, fall away. We celebrate, we mourn. Look, here comes another one. In that poem, you said you were pushing to get to the, the front of the conga line. And I'm curious how, how have you revised who you are over the years? Are you still the person that tries to push to be the front? front of the conga line, leading that parade? Or have you shifted with your poetry into something more observant, perhaps less centered? Have you been talking to my analyst? Because this is what he's working on. This is, this is his mission, right? He's like, we got to get that ego down. We got to, <laughs> it served you. It served you well, but now it's, it, it takes more energy to, to get to the front. You know, it, uh, you may be a net loss of juice fighting your way to be seen, to be loved, right? To be the Todd father. So uh, that's a scary proposition, right? Because when you lead with joy, you receive joy, right? So to lead with, I've tried recently, actually, you know, again, in the last few years with the pandemic and with this caregiving status, I've, I've actually led a little bit more with, with exhaustion, led more with sadness, led more with vulnerability, as you said, a, an observer, a watcher. But it's, it's warring with that other side, which really wants to be Captain Kirk. <laughs> Give me the helm. I'll save us all. <laughs> so, see, I just did it, right? Like, you asked me to sort of, are you more vulnerable now? Are you? And I'm like, no, I'm Captain Kirk. Uh, so that side is, it's so easy to slip into, right? And you you were alluded earlier to how comics, comedians underneath that is often a, a sort of, a, an ache, right? A loneliness, a disturbed kind of, you know, personality. And, uh, yeah, somehow when you put on that smiling mask, right? County Cullen, I think it was, or was Paul Lawrence Dunbar, forgive me, has that poem, we wear the mask. We wear the mask that grins and lies, right? This is a 120-year-old poem, and it's so true. But like so many things, we get back to this unknowability. Like, am I being inauthentic when I lead with silliness, with mirth, with joy? Am I hiding? No, I'm simply having a good time, right? And uh, hoping it will be received in that spirit. And 
but you know, as you and I know, we've spent a lot of time laughing and joking. We've also spent a lot of time speaking honestly about difficulty, about grief, about loss, about challenges. So I'm never afraid to go there. I'm not somebody, I wouldn't call myself someone who's toxically positive, right? Do I seek the front? Less so, you know, we're reaching late middle age. I don't think we can use that much longer. Oh no. But um, yeah, and you, you do watch the youth endlessly rise up, right? I'll enter the city, an event, and it's like, wow, there's a lot of 30-year-olds here. Uh, where did they come from? And, and you're not seen as much, right? I'm not the first person to point that out. In fact, I'm probably the 10 billionth person to point that out. And that's interesting. And I think, I think writers uh, in general are, are observers. I've always been one. I like to watch people. I like to watch how they hold a coffee cup, uh, how they talk to each other, how they hug, how they sit over their laptop. I mean, I, I'm a compulsive observer. So I'm comfortable in either position, the front or the back of the conga line or sitting at a table while everyone else boogies. They all have these really marvelous vantage points at the human panoply. You mentioned the youth rising up, and indeed they are. Uh, and that's been a perennial emergence, of course, of new generations. You teach. What do the students need from you? What are their expectations of you as a teacher of poetry? Well, I think above all, they want to be seen. They want to be treated with respect and interest. You know, they want to be engaged with. Uh, and of course, there are varying degrees. Some really want to be seen and engaged with, and some want to kind of hide, but in a classroom space. But, you know, they all want to be writers, and that means they want to be read, which is another way of saying they want to be seen, right? So in a classroom space, you're doing multiple things, right? On the one hand, we're in this post-pandemic space, in this climate change space, in this like ragged democracy space, right? Where things really feel unsettled. And things, of course, have always felt unsettled, but we've got concrete evidence that things are a little shakier than they've been, right? So on the one hand, you know, what they need is care. They need patience. They need understanding, right? They need a long runway. So that means you give them a little room maybe more room than I used to, to hand in stuff a little late or maybe to, to not, not always have the textbook ready or what have you. But that can shade into neglect or indifference. So you also, another form of compassion is, maybe compassion isn't the word, but another way of seeing them is to have high expectations. I expect that we will read work that is not always easy to read, that we will do our best to try to make sense of how it uses technique to try to uncover what it's trying to say, which may not be obvious, or the, or the internal contradictions it may have, et cetera. And then, of course, to write, to write knowing that our time together is limited, that we have a semester, we have a class period, we have 15 minutes tonight to write. So to use it, and I really do hold them to that. I say pen's on the page, that pen has to keep moving. You don't get to sit there. No one's looking at their phones. We're not looking at laptops. We're here. We're here together for this brief time. And then when I get their work, when they print it for me and hand it in, they know that uh, I will fill each page with ink. You know, I'm, I'm taking, this is my life's work. So I'm going to give them more attention than they knew they were going to get. And it'll be at once critical and supportive. So, uh, yeah, what do they need? They need to be respected. And uh, that takes many forms. You have written a lot of poetry much of it published, I'm sure, much of it in a drawer waiting for revision. 
but it's abundantly clear that you think deeply about life and meaning, your own and for all of us. What is it to exist and to experience this majesty of life? And so I'm wondering in that spirit, what wisdom do you feel you have accrued for yourself? What enlightenment have you gained, even self-awareness, from writing poetry? Well, poetry slows you down. You, you have to be in an undistracted space. I have to be in an undistracted space. So I forget this a lot because I distract myself constantly, as we all do. But, you know, if, if I'm working on a poem, I really need quiet. I need my phone can't be anywhere near. I can't do anything else. I can't multitask, right? Like, I mean, you are multitasking within yourself, right? Observation and impression and your writing. And maybe you do pause to look up a word, you know, to find a synonym. Uh, the poem is a consecrated space. It's a, it's a space of distilled concentration. And uh, we all know that there are teams of, of brilliant engineers who are funded by brilliant millionaires and billionaires to colonize our consciousness, to colonize our time to monetize our attention, right? So the wisdom that poetry has given me is that, that there is much room left for us that can't really be colonized, that is our own, that is quiet and still and deep and true. It's the best possible use of time. Can we close with one or two more poems, please? We can, we can. This one's a little weird. An agnostic maps God's country. Stirring bourbon and corn syrup in the cracked ancestral cup, you ponder a night's drive west, where cattle cough at the edge of purgatory as the last antenna whips past rotten homesteads, crackling cowboy songs, melting farm girls toward all sorts of trouble. The Lord, they call him who stacks nimbus clouds over coyote dens and haymows, Jealous even as he teases green shoots from rose. Sunlight through windmill blades are facets of his face. But death still stands every cowlick down at last. He leadeth me to still waters, another nocturne to bounce off the cloud rack. Chemistry has truer aim, but plonks perhaps against the backbone of a lower power. Remember that as you climb the celestial ladder Godward, while stars fall further away, and daily coffee cools iron dark, while constellations wink out, and the voice that welcomed you here stammers goodbye. Maybe I'll close with one from Mass for Shut-ins. You read so beautifully. I can't compare, but um, I think this one, Postcards to Ourselves, I think it... Uh, I think it encompasses much of what we've spoken of today. What were you doing down by the Vinca Minor, raked by photons and hurt? The neighbor's Pekingese were having heart attacks while we grubbed around in the back 40th, heat waves wrinkling dirt. I told your father you were the fairest daughter, but still he drank. Your mother kept her lump to herself. Do you remember when we danced on a burning beach in those hills of sand? Highway 2 felt like Mars, our crawl through to grandfather radio warble, the bend of metal and rock, calf hair on wire. 
dry ponds winking as we worked our way along the Pawnee Trail toward reservations littered with satellite dishes. Your little feet walked up and down my back. My hands held your fear. Custer State Park, a thumbprint moon blurring our star party, my heart a trout thrashing. Wyoming was the smudged aquarium glass of dream logic, the heat of your cheek. Yes, the sky will swallow your blue skirt, my philosopher's arms. In Missoula, we almost visited that little church. I wanted an offering plate to hold campfire popcorn. You wanted incense to perfume those diesel clouds and feedlots. We carved mold from hard cheese, slipped sardines down green throats. The old man in the bookstore sang, Take care. Take care of beauty. My guest today has been poet Todd Robinson. Todd, thank you so much for sharing your creative honesty and just the wisdom and delight to be found in your poems. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. sweet pea and a thousand other ebullient terms of joy and honor and respect forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. We'll cut out that last.